Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have been doing well since I was on the air last. I am glad to be back on the air, like I always am, with you all, my uh, faithful uh, 101 uh, podcast listeners. The big news in store is that we have now reached the epilogue to uh, Daniel Allen Butler's The Other Side of the Night, The Carpathia, The Californian, and The Night the Titanic Was Lost. This has been a great series, and I know that wherever we go next after the end of this series will still uh, be worth the while. It will be relevant, just like all other ones that have come before um, leading up to this one. But I must say that I have really enjoyed uh, talking with you all about not only just this book, but really about the Titanic itself. You know, even uh, even after 110 years, the ship itself still retains its fair share of secrets that at some point might get uh, discovered. It might just, it might take a little bit of time, but at some point other secrets and facts about the Titanic will get revealed that we don't already know about. But I will say that even um, within these last uh, 37 years since uh, Dr. Robert Ballard and his crew discovered um, some of the uh, boilers um, of the Titanic that ultimately led them to the actual wreckage of the ship, within, within the 37-year time span, we have, uh, we've uncovered a lot. And while, yes, there will always be those who uh, did oppose um, artifacts being brought up from the... Uh, floor of the uh, North Atlantic Ocean where the Titanic sank and where she ultimately rested, I think it is fair to say that those artifacts have definitely told um, their share of stories to countless visitors who have visited uh, the Titanic, um, the Museum of the Titanic in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, as well as the Titanic Museum in Branson, Missouri, including a Titanic Museum in Belfast, Ireland, where she was um, officially built uh, back in 1909. No matter what facts, or rather I should say, no matter what uh, new mysteries or clues or findings uh, historians and uh, maritime, um, uh, maritime, uh, what do you call it, maritime historians, we could say, um, learn about this um, famed shipwreck, the, the findings will certainly be relevant and they will certainly be worth the while to uh, share not only uh, for the present um moment, but for uh, future generations as well. So in the epilogue, it's more than just uh, we've uh, reached the end. I think it's fair to say that we ought to learn about what happens to uh, the fate of the White Star Line in the aftermath of Titanic sinking. I think it would be fair to um, to point out or fair to reveal that um, perhaps one ocean liner, transatlantic ocean liner, had a much better career than the other one um, following uh, Titanic sinking. And it's not so much just because it was one separate um, liner, but it could be fair to say that perhaps one liner uh, survived um, better in terms of uh, financial straits and perhaps was able to um, reinvent itself more to where the other liner simply just was unable to recover. And we'll also learn about the... um, the Leland Line and how long it stayed in existence even after um, the Titanic tragedy, given that was the um, line that the uh, Californian was under. 
We'll also learn in the epilogue about uh, men like James Bruce Ismay, uh, the chairman of the White Star Line, and what and what um, how how much longer he lived uh, after the Titanic sinking, and what um, and what he did with the remaining years of his life um, leading up to his death. Uh, so we do have a lot of ground to cover, but it, it will certainly be well worth the while. So I think it's fair to say that we better get the show on the road and uh, let's get prepared for our first uh, leadoff uh, question to the epilogue of The Other Side of the Night, The Carpathia, The Californian, and The Night the Titanic Was Lost by Daniel Allen Butler. So here we go, folks. Did Titanic sinking mark the beginning of the end for the White Star Line. Yes. Not long after Titanic sinking, did plans for weekly express service between New York and Southampton, England, fade away altogether, which further dashed long-term competition amongst her chief rival, Cunard Line, which was home to uh, such uh, ships like uh, Carpathia, Lusitania, Mauritania, and other ships that we had uh, learned about early on that uh, Captain Arthur Rostron, who um, was Carpathia's commander just before uh, the Titanic uh, tragedy, but other ships like the Saxonia, Avernia, you know, interesting, they all end in uh, NIA, but that just goes to show you that uh, when we think of Cunard Line, it's important to think more than just Lusitania, Mauritania, and uh, Carpathia. So, unfortunately, White Star Line, um, you know, right before uh, Titanic and Olympics maiden voyage, um, when James Bruce Ismay was trying to um, reinvent White Star Line, given that Cunard Line had already taken the uh, lead and uh, getting um, ships built for um, speed purposes, um, the White Star Line was really about promoting better means of luxury. So White Star Line, uh, going into um, 1909, had three sister ships um, laid out. Uh, the Olympic and the Titanic were both built at the same time, but there was a third ship that was going to even be grander than the Titanic, not only in terms of accommodating more passengers than Titanic, but her, um, her overall length was going to be bigger than Titanic and Olympic. That ship was going to be called the Gigantic but later it became the Britannic. Now, the Britannic did see, um, not long after World War I began, uh, the British Royal Navy went about placing uh, Britannic into action, into action of war by using her as a hospital ship. Sadly, in uh, November of 1916, about uh, four and a half years after Titanic sank, uh, the Britannic... Um, was caught um, in the midst of um, war action where, um, while off the coast of Greece in the Aegean Sea, the Britannic sadly struck a mine and sank in an hour and a half. Only 35 people died, but still, it, it's sad. Uh, we, have, we do have to keep in mind that there were plenty of ships in the First World War I that were not uh, military ships, but yet they were ships that um, were caught in the crossfire of enemy action. There were no boundaries that could restrict a submarine 
from what it could or couldn't do. Submarines were pretty much allowed to take out any kind of ship that was in that was in their territory uh, that they felt was a threat. So in other words, there was no means of warning a ship in the distance that, hey, look, you know, you are if you are not connected with us, we ask that you leave. And if you don't respond back, then then that means that you are you are eithering, um you are either um, not willing to play by our rules, and so therefore we may have to shoot you down, um, given that you are uh, in violation of our uh, territory. So sadly, uh, given in this case of the Britannic, the Britannic not being struck by a landmine, but she was struck by a submarine. I meant to say. She wasn't struck by a submarine, but given that she was struck by a mine, uh, it, the circumstances are still very uh, tragic. Now, as for the Olympic being Titanic's uh, twin sister ship, she too saw action in World War I, but luckily she survived, uh, whereas Britannic didn't. But come 1919, she returned to passenger service, but by the mid-1920s, the White Star Line began seeing drastic decline in total revenues to where profits really were just no longer relevant. Whatever profits the White Star Line earned came out to be rather very meager. In other words, the, the profits they were making were never enough to um, pay back any existing debts. They weren't enough to be able to uh, replace existing deficits. So basically... The White Star Line Company was probably uh, engaging what in what we would think of as uh, deficit spending. In other words, they were they were coming they were using money that they didn't necessarily have just to be able to uh, stay afloat. Well, these um, the profits were the revenues where profits were no longer relevant, and given that the um, the money just wasn't there. If that's bad enough, come 1929, you have the uh, stock market crash that leads to the Great Depression, which sadly uh, decimates White Star's finances to where any money that had not been used for building future ships could no longer be funded. So by 1932, uh, the same year that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gets uh, elected as president, 1932 is the year in which White Star Line emerges with Cunard. And by 1950, the last of White Star's assets were dissolved. So therefore, just after 80 years when she first um, came about, or just after 80 years, I should say, uh, given that White Star Line was established in the 1840s, but given uh, that just after 80 years, um, when uh, James Bruce Ismay's father uh, rescued the company from what was then um, near bankruptcy, sadly, the White Star Line is no longer in play. To think that by 1950, just 72 years ago, White Star, the last of White Star Line's um, assets were in existence and were completely dissolved. Hang tight for just a moment, folks. What became of uh, Titanic's um, second officer, Charles Lightoller? You know, he was the senior most uh, officer whom survived uh, the sinking. Uh, the first officer, Will Murdoch, uh, died 
and the sinking. But what became of uh, Titanic's second officer, Charles Lightoller? Well, it turns out that Mr. Lightoller, or rather Officer Lightoller, along with the other type along with the other surviving Titanic officers, never received a command of their own. So in other words, they probably worked um, on other uh, ships, either with the White Star Line or with other companies, but they never uh, commanded their own uh, vessel, or uh, let alone vessels, I should say. But come the early 1920s, for Officer, for, for officer Charles Lightoller, um, he retired from the transatlantic uh, liner industry and had rather a, a decent retirement life. Uh, he got to do other things that he wanted to do. But by uh, 19, come 1952, he died, and he uh, lived to be close to 80 years old. So he, um, out of all the surviving officers of the Titanic, he lived to be the oldest uh, near um, the age of 80. Despite uh, Cunard Line's uh, Lusitania going down on May the 7th, 1915, due to being hit by a German U-boat, did uh, Cunard remain afloat? Yes, she prospered even through the Great Depression, folks, to where new liners from the Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Elizabeth II, or what was known as the QE2, to the Queen Mary helped usher in a golden era for the Cunard Line uh, from the 1940s into the 1950s. My uh, maternal grandparents uh, went, on a, went on the QE2 uh, years ago. I think it was back in the late 1970s or the start of uh, 1980. And I remember um, when I was about 10 or 12 years old, I remember my uh, grandmother showing me a um, poster of the QE2. And I remember asking her a lot of uh, questions about what it was like taking that boat ride and I remember her saying to me you know Kirk I remember um, just about everything there was to the boat ride and just how um, elegant it was you know top-notch service and then she said you know the hardest part was they would give you these menus and it wasn't just so much the menus but looking through the menus and we're not talking three and four pages folks uh, my grandmother I think said that the menus were about 20 to 30 pages so you had a plethora of choices to choose from as to what meal you wanted because, you know, given that, you know, for one, it's a big ship, they have they had to have a, obviously a lot of crew there to, um, to accommodate the vast number of passengers on the ship. But you think about it, they're doing three meals a day, so I can only imagine just how many, um, what the food supply uh, in terms of the logistics would have been like um, for that um for that kind of a uh, boat ride but of course i cannot imagine what it would be like for 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 those uh royal royal caribbean uh cruise line ships <laughs> a lot of logistics there so but she said it was a very uh magical um boat ride going um all the way from uh, new york to um which i'm going to presume would have been uh, southampton england so and believe it or not folks uh Cunard uh, managed to stay afloat even during the last two decades of the 20th century. But come 1996, Carnival Corporation bought Cunard and oversaw restoring the company to its past prestige. Q the QE2 underwent restoration and come 2004, the Queen Mary II, the largest passenger liner ever built, 
got introduced to the North Atlantic run. What do you know? Cunard Line was the first transatlantic liner to introduce regular transatlantic passenger service. And what do you know? She became the last to offer it. You know, some Cunard Line might not um, exist anymore, but the fact that Cunard Line was still with us all the way to the end of the 20th century is, to me, is uh, pretty remarkable. Very seldomly do you ever hear of a transatlantic liner that serviced, that had, uh, whose um, existence lasted as long as uh, Cunard's did. I'd have to say, to me, that would have placed Cunard in the elite 1-2% to of um, businesses that, um, that existed longer than, say, the average uh, life expectancy of a business that really is something of a uh, bygone era. Did Cunard Line lose any other ships during the First World War? Now, before I uh, give the answer to that question, yes, we already know that Cunard lost uh, the Lusitania in World War I. And the sad part here is that Lusitania's captain had been warned multiple times about the presence of uh, German U-boats along the waters that Cunard Line was uh, traveling along. I mean, obviously she was traveling along the Atlantic Ocean, but given where she was going along the Atlantic Ocean, she had been told to uh, alter her course. In other words, the captain should have um, should have steered the ship in a, a zigzag path to where, had he done that kind of a course, then the um, German uh, submarines or U-boats, or the German U-boat that ultimately uh, got the um, got the uh, Lusitania in the end, unfortunately, had it, had things been a little bit differently, there is a likelihood that the uh, German submarine would have missed its target, being the Lusitania. But sadly, the captain did not heed the warnings that were given to him and was uh, totally convinced that no uh, submarine could, um, or U-boat could um, inflict damage on the Lusitania to where, the, to where she would sink. You know, whereas Titanic um, sank three years earlier, 1912, it took Titanic two hours and 40 minutes to sink. For the Lusitania, after she was um, torpedoed, it only took uh, 20 minutes for her to completely sink. Talk about a contrast, and, um, you know, to me it's a huge contrast, but yet they both have uh, tragic endings, to say the least. Sadly for the Lusitania, they did not even have time to lower lifeboats. Titanic, yes, did lower lifeboats, but not everyone had the chance to get on a lifeboat. For Lusitania, yes, there were those who did survive, but there were a, a lot of um, passengers who didn't get the chance to survive. So, so to answer this question, did Cunard Line lose any other ships during the First World War? The answer, believe it or not, is yes. And do you know what ship she lost? She lost the Carpathia, the ship who had come to the rescue of Titanic's 705 survivors. Well, three years after Lusitania was hit by a German U-boat, July 17, 1918, 
Carpathia was part of a group of multiple ships bound for Boston, but two days earlier, come July the 15th, she had departed from Liverpool, England, carrying 57 passengers and 166 uh, crewmen. Carpathia was um, part of a larger group of ships that all uh, went about traveling on a zigzag course, okay? They're doing something that Lusitania had been told to do a few years earlier, and of course Lusitania's captain didn't follow that advice. So Carpathia and the other ships are on a zigzag course, and there is an escort. Okay, now this is all good here, folks. They are finding ways to go about modifying any um, would-be scenarios where the worst case could happen. Sadly, on July 17th, though, the escort left the group to where the group itself was reduced. Carpathia went west with six other ships. At 9.15 a.m. on uh, July the 17th, around the southwest approaches, which are the offshore waters southwest of Great Britain and Ireland, a torpedo was spotted coming on Carpathia's port side, but it was too late to avoid it. Carpathia was attacked on the port side by Imperial German uh, Navy submarine SMU-55. Although Carpathia was towed with the uh, intent on being repaired, two more torpedo strikes soon followed, and sadly, uh, Carpathia did sink. She uh, sunk at around 11 a.m. on July the 17th of 1918. But there is uh, some good news to report. How can there be good news, though, to report when Carpathia has sunk? It turns out, folks, that 218 out of the ship's 223 passengers and crew escaped. The ship had 11 lifeboats. So think about it, folks. Only five people lost their lives. And those people were um, uh, working at the, uh, at the bottom of the ship. They were uh, The people who were working down below were uh, tending to the boilers and to the uh, coal. So, 218 out of 223 passengers and crew uh, survived. I think that is um, a miracle, considering that the Carpathia itself as a ship didn't make it. Now, it was 22 years ago, folks. Now, right before I read this book, I had no idea about what even happened to Carpathia. I was kind of always under the assumption that maybe she had just gotten retired as a ship. But had she been retired as a ship, I would have probably learned that somewhere years ago. It turns out that it was in the year 2000. And believe it or not, I was in college in the year 2000. Amer American author and diver Clive Cussler revealed that his organization, being National Underwater and Marine Agency, had found the actual wreck of Carpathia, at a depth of 500 feet, 120 miles west of Fastnet, Ireland. The wreck of the Carpathia is now owned by Premier Exhibitions Incorporated, formerly RMS Titanic. I think it's pretty amazing that um, author and diver Clive Cussler, through the help of his organization, did in fact 
discover the actual wreck of Carpathia. Despite Carpathia sinking in 1918, Captain Arthur Rostron's legacy remained strong. So he wasn't uh, aboard uh, Carpathia when she went, uh, sadly went down. He was still uh, working for the Cunard Line, but he was uh, commanding um, other uh, ships. So yes, his legacy remained strong. He was he was presented with multiple um, awards, folks. One of them was a silver cup and gold medal by a group of Titanic survivors. You know, if I was a survivor of the Titanic, I would have wanted to have seen to it that Arthur Rostron got all the proper recognition, not just the captain himself, but his crew, whom went above and beyond to uh, fervently come to the um, rescue of the ship, knowing that he may not even get to Titanic, could have gotten to Titanic in enough time before she ultimately went down. And while tragically that was the case, he and his crew still pulled out something miraculous, and that they were rescued by the seven, that they uh, rescued 705 um, people whom, um, whom, uh, lived through a um, terrible tragedy uh, that even to this day cannot be forgotten, despite knowing that uh, there are no more um, living survivors from the um, Titanic uh, tragedy still alive. So yes, I would have rather, if I was a, a Titanic survivor, I would have rather have been rescued by Carpathia any day over uh, Captain Stanley Lord and the Californian. Now that's not to say that, the, that his uh, crew did everything there was to, to warn their master, but knowing how uh, ignorant Stanley Lord was on the waters, that's a whole other story unto itself. Hang tight for just a moment. Enjoy myself a nice glass of um, hot peppermint uh, tea. <laughs> Can never beat a good glass of hot tea, to say the least. But um, but yes, it was very nice that... Uh, that that a group of Titanic survivors had presented uh, Captain Arthur Rostron with a silver cup and a gold medal. Rostron himself commanded other uh, Cunard Line vessels from Carmania to Campania, and um, he even commanded the Lusitania for a short period of time, but he did so, uh, and that was done prior to 1915, the year of her sinking. In 1917, he began um, taking on the head command of Mauritania, uh, Lusitania's um, sister ship. This was a post that uh, Rostron himself held until 1928. He lived until the age of 71. He died in 1940. That means, folks, that uh, Arthur Rostron lived long enough to see the start of World War II take place. He lived long enough to see Adolf Hitler come to power. He lived long enough to see uh, Hitler um, and the Nazi forces invade Poland. He lived long enough to see um, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain appease Adolf Hitler. But he died a year before uh, the Japanese bombed uh, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, which ultimately, um, in the aftermath of that uh, tragic uh, incident, got the United States into uh, World War II. So Arthur Rostron certainly uh, lived a good life. 
even after um, coming to the rescue of the Titanic survivors, he uh, still managed to accomplish a great deal more in his life, and uh, he lived uh, to be the age of 71 in 1940. Now, what became of a Californian after Titanic sinking? She remained involved in the transatlantic trade business between New Orleans, Boston, and Liverpool, England. But come the summer of 1915, she got transferred to the Mediterranean region, where she transported supplies to the Aegean Sea in support of Allied force arrivals at Gallipoli. <laughs> That's how I'll spell it, folks, and pronounce it. I'm sure that... Um, I'm sure there are some people out there who could correct me, and if, and if they had to, I, I would certainly, um, I would certainly uh, understand why. But it's uh, Gallipoli, which is a peninsula near uh, present-day uh, Turkey. 7:45 a.m. on November the 9th of 1915, Californian was traveling off Cape Matapan, or Matapan, not far from uh, the Greek, not far from the Greece, uh, from the coastline of Greece. Normally, she would have been transporting British troops to Gallipoli, which was her primary function, but on this day of November 9th, 1915, there were no troops on board, which, to me, could be seen as a blessing. Sadly, without any warning, a torpedo struck the starboard side of the Californian. But hours later, in the midst of Californian being towed, by a French torpedo boat, a Ger the same German U-boat that um, struck her earlier continued stalking her to where a second torpedo was launched with devastating impacts where Californian took on water rapidly. The crew was forced to abandon ship. Californian sank, sank quickly. Whereas 22 years ago, Carpathia was discovered, by Clive Cussler and uh, and the uh, group that he runs. Sadly for Californian, her wreck to this day has never been discovered, largely in part because the ship itself lies in more than 5,000 feet of water. Chances are in my lifetime this ship might not ever be discovered. I find it odd to think that 22 years ago, the ship that came to the um, Titanic's rescue, in terms of the survivor's rescue, was discovered. And to think that there were at least maybe six or seven Titanic survivors still left who got to see that happen? I can't imagine being one of the few Titanic survivors still alive and learning that the ship that came to my rescue that she was discovered. That's quite remarkable, knowing that if you were a Titanic survivor and you learned about that, it's um, that could bring closure right there as well. And here the Californian, of course we could thank Captain Stanley Lord for all of his inactivity, but knowing that the sh that ship will never be discovered, I'm wondering if there's a curse there. Who knows? But very interesting to say the least that the ship that came to Titanic's rescue was discovered, and the ship that and the ship that uh, was nearby and didn't do anything thanks to the um, ignorant captain 
that ship to this day has not been discovered and probably will never be so in our lifetime. As for the uh, company that Californian um, was under, being the Leland Line, that folded in 1935 altogether. So 20 years after Californian, 20 years after um, Californian uh, sank, the Leland Line collapsed altogether. What became of uh, Californian's uh, wireless operator, Cyril Evans, after the Titanic tragedy? He spent the rest of his life, or rather I should say working career, with the Marconi Company, where he became one of the company's managing engineers. Very impressive. Sadly, though, at age 67, he died of a heart attack in June of 1959. Apprentice officer James Gibson joined Cunard Line not long after the uh, Titanic tragedy, where he served aboard uh, Carmania and Scythia. He earned his master's certificate, where he later attained the rank of second mate with Holt Line, Sailing along the West African coast, he was a veteran of World War II and died in 1963. Chief Officer uh, George Stewart uh, remained with the Leland Line after Titanic sinking and got promoted to captain. He stayed on with the Leland Line until it folded in 1935, uh, the year he retired. He lived another five years and died in uh, 1940. Although getting cleared of any wrongdoing by the official uh, British inquiry, did James Bruce Ismay, White Star Line's chairman, ever recover from the Titanic tragedy? Do, do any of you think that uh, James Bruce Ismay ever recovered from this tragedy? No. Uh, for Mr. Ismay... Um, he never um, recovered, given the incident itself placed him placed him into a severe state of depression, where he never broke free from um, keeping a low profile. In other words, he really um, stayed confined to himself. He did go out, but it was but it was under how do you call it? under um, circumstances where the media didn't know everything that was going on, perhaps, back then. Not long after the sinking of uh, Titanic, he stepped down from the White Star Line. Uh, he did go to work for a company called the Liverpool and London Steamship Protection and Indemnity Association uh, Limited, which was an insurance company that just so happened to be founded by his father. Hang tight here for just a moment. Bruce Ismay, though, um, in, in the years after Titanic's sinking, he still had involvement in the maritime uh, business. He went about welcoming a cadet ship called uh, the Mersey, which I believe would have been named after um, Lord uh, Mersey, who oversaw the um, British inquiry of the uh, Titanic sinking. So he went about welcoming this uh, cadet ship called the Mersey, which was designed to train officers for Britain's uh, merchant navy. In 1919, um, 
James Bruce Ismay gave money to set up a fund honoring the merchant marines and their services uh, during the First World War. Hey, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. In the aftermath of the Titanic sinking, uh, Bruce Ismay's wife oversaw the tit- oversaw oversaw things to where she put her ha- put her foot down and basically told her family that the Titanic matter was to never be to never again be discussed. In other words, I think Dad has suffered enough. Your father has suffered enough. I mean, Bruce Ismay did have children, folks. I want to say he had at least two or three. But w- what are we going to gain by talking about all this? It turns out, though, that Bruce Ismay got onto the last lifeboat that Titanic um, lowered right before she sank. So think about it, folks. Bruce Ismay, he was really, in a sense, was minutes from dying. And do I personally believe that he probably should have gone down with the ship? Yes, he should have. But at the same time, um, you know, on the other hand, though, despite the fact that he was haunted, not only by uh, just people in general who um, hounded him for his um, improper uh, behavior, but I do at the same time, I do think it's great that he uh, did make some uh, contributions based upon what we just learned a moment ago with the um, cadet ship called the Mersey that helped um, train officers for Britain's uh, merchant navy, as well as um, giving money to set up a fund honoring the merchant mariners and their services, not just for those who uh, survived World War I, but perhaps for those who didn't. So I don't see anything wrong with his uh, doing all that. Maybe it was his way of trying to um, be a little bit of a better person. But I could see where his uh, wife um, oversaw uh, the Titanic manner to never be again discussed within the Ismay family, given how sensitive it was. Christmas of 1936, um, a grandson of Bruce Ismay's learned that his grandfather worked in the maritime industry. So um, the grandchild asked Grandpa Ismay if he had ever been shipwrecked. The elder Ismay's response was the following. Yes, I was once in a ship which was believed to be unsinkable. The Titanic. Can't imagine the, the look on the grandchild's face. On October the 14th of 1937, Bruce Ismay suffered a severe stroke so bad that it left him unconscious to where he became blind. And three days later, on October the 17th, he died at the age of 74. He was buried in Putney Vale Cemetery in London. And ironically, three months earlier, on July 20th of 1937, Guglielmo Marconi, the inventor of the wireless Marconi operating system, died at age 63. To think both of these men lived a quarter, they lived a quarter of a century after Titanic sinking. Bruce Ismay and Guglielmo Marconi lived long enough to see what would soon become World War I. They lived long enough to see um, Adolf Hitler come to power, as I mentioned earlier with um, a, a few uh, minutes ago. And um, 
they also, these two men lived long enough to see um, the summer games held in uh, Munich, uh, Germany in 1936, which was um, the, um, which just happened to be uh, just before, um, uh, just a year before uh, both men died. So if you think about it, both of these men did live for the last 25 years of their lot of their lives they lived long enough to see other things that were unique and other things that perhaps were not so unique. What about uh, Frederick Fleet? Didn't I know we learned some stuff about him uh, earlier on. He was one of the um, lookout um, crewmen um, on Titanic who um, just so happened to spot that object that was um, nearby to where Titanic couldn't um, avoid it. So what about Frederick Fleet, uh, the lookout man who sighted the iceberg? Remember, he's the one that said, Iceberg! Iceberg! Right ahead! After ringing the bell three times, because, you know, when a lookout man rings the bell three times, that means that something imminent is approaching, something dangerous, perhaps something that shouldn't be taken lightly, something that could um, have a profound uh, negative impact on the ship's well-being, and not just on the, the well-being of the ship, but for the passengers and crew inside or who are simply aboard the ship. Well, for Frederick Fleet, I will point out that he was only 25 years old in, in 1912. So he was 25 years old on Titanic's maiden voyage. That means he... It was born in the late 1880s. Well, it turns out that he did survive uh, the sinking. And secondly, he testified at both inquiries, emphasizing that if binoculars had been available, and I don't understand why the binoculars weren't available. That, that, to me, that's odd. Binoculars have been around for a long time, folks. So, but the bottom line is Frederick Fleet did not, and his uh, crewmate in the lookout in the crow's nest did not have the binoculars. So, at both inquiries for the uh, United States and uh, British inquiries, um, lookout uh, Fred Frederick Fleet um, said that had the binoculars been available, the iceberg itself could have been spotted sooner, which in his which in his mind means that if those binoculars were there and the iceberg was spotted sooner. Titanic's crew might have been able to have avoided the worst-case scenario. That is, turning hard a starboard to the left, thinking that they had avoided the, the iceberg, only to realize that 80% of the iceberg, 80 to 90% of the um, iceberg lied at the bottom. And, and of course, we all know what happened next. Um, uh, the iceberg causing so much damage... Uh, to where the ship ultimately uh, listed at, at, a, at about uh, five degrees. Five degrees may not seem like much, but when Captain Smith's saw, inspected the damage, he and Thomas Andrews, Captain Smith, upon learning that the ship had turned five degrees, his the first words were, oh my God, meaning that we're not going to probably make it. We're, we're on borrowed time. So, for Frederick Fleet, he left the White Star Line not long after the Titanic sank, where he spent the next 24 years working for multiple shipping companies. 
Now, the next thing I have to say about Frederick Fleet, I know it's not going to sound pleasant, and I'm not going to um, go into excessive details on it, but it did happen, and it's a it's a terrible. It's you know, we we none of us get to choose how we wish to go, but we also need to keep in mind that there were that there the circumstances did go on during the time in which he was living and leading up to his death. On December 28th of 1964, uh, Frederick Fleet's wife died. So by the end of 1964, Frederick Fleet is in his late 70s, probably maybe 76, 77 years old. So sadly, his his wife died. But sadly, Frederick himself was evicted from the house by his brother-in-law, his wife's brother evicted him. Something tells me that uh, that the wife's brother did not have a good relationship with uh, with Frederick and his wife. It just goes to show you that even 60 years ago, there were uh, complicated matters in families um, in 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 family homes. If that wasn't bad enough, um, he returned to the house. Even after he was evicted, he returned to the house on January 10th of 1965 and um, took his own life. I'm, I'm sorry that I tell you all this, folks, but we do. I guess we just need to keep in mind that not everyone who survived uh, Titanic, um, not everyone who survived Titanic lived a, um, lived a, a normal life after the sinking. I mean, yes, there were... All of those whom did survive tried their best to go on with their lives as best as they could, and many did. But yet there still was um, a side to them who probably could not come to open terms and discuss the matter freely with people, given how um, horrific of a how horrific the circumstances were. Knowing that for those of you, for those survivors who survived, watch watched thousands plunge to their deaths, jumping from the ship, only to die in the frigid water, given that, you know, the water temperature was well below 32 degrees, and only one lifeboat went back and pulled only three survivors out. So when we think about all those other little factors, I could see how it would have been very painful for many of the uh, survivors to have been able to have talked about the uh, sinking, even say, 30 or 40 years after the um, the matter itself had uh, happened. However, I can point out, though, that there is some um, there was some good closure, though, in the end, uh, years after Frederick Fleet had passed away. For one, he was uh, buried at uh, Holybrook Cemetery in Southampton, England. But come 1993, nearly 30 years ago, the Titanic Historical Society through donations um, raised, went about erecting a headstone bearing an engraving of the ship on Frederick Fleet's grave, as it had previously been unmarked. To me, this is a very, very um, grand uh, gesture. Perhaps the Titanic Historical Society learned, uh, learned about how he died, and they also know that he went above and beyond and having done the right thing by warning the crew right away about the iceberg. And 
to me, I think it's nice to know that, okay, there is an engraving on uh, Frederick Fleet's grave of the Titanic, knowing that he performed his services admirably and that he shouldn't be forgotten. So for those who may not have died, who may not have died peacefully, at least there have, at least uh, for the, at least there were other ways for the for these people to have been uh, remembered, in a more positive manner. Uh, what findings uh, came came about or emerged from uh, the U.S. and uh, British uh, inquiries into Titanic sinking? Well, for starters, there had been uh, a lack of formal um, emergency preparations, which placed Titanic's passengers and crew into a uh, great state of uh, vulnerability, meaning uh, no general alarms got issued. Secondly, Titanic's life-saving equipment hadn't been properly tested or inspected. Third, Captain Smith failed to recognize the severity of multiple ice warnings issued by multiple ships on April the 14th of 1912, Lack of lifeboats to adequate number of lifeboats, given the total number of lifeboats on Titanic was enough for only 1,100 people, meaning over 1,100 people left vulnerable, which ultimately meant that not everybody would, not only would everyone not be able to have access to a lifeboat, but it also meant that there would be a great likelihood that perhaps more than a thousand people would die and sadly we had 1502 that did senator william alden smith of michigan whom has done a whom did a phenomenal job of uh, co chairing that subcommittee he issued multiple numbers of suggestions for new regulations to be placed on passenger vessels uh, the first one um these regulations being placed on passenger vessels wanting to get, wanting to use American ports, they were um, as follows. Number one, ships are to slow down upon entering areas known for having drift ice, which means having extra lookouts on duty or guard. Number two, navigational messages are to be brought immediately to the bridge. Gee, had those wireless operators brought the uh, warnings immediately to the bridge? There still could have been a chance that uh, that Titanic may have had enough time still to have slowed down and perhaps avoided the iceberg altogether, or if they or if the ship could not have hit the avoided the iceberg, it should have just hit it straight on to where no more than the four watertight bulkhead compartments would have flooded, and the ship would have still remained afloat. Who knows? I mean, there's all there. There always could have been modifications, but even if the modification had been made, we still don't know what really would have been the true outcome of the ship long term. We still would have had these uh, suggestions uh, for um, for new regulations. I do believe that. So uh, there also for William Alden Smith in terms of new regulations there must be enough lifeboats for everyone on board okay if there are over 2200 passengers and crew guess what there needs to be double the amount of lifeboats instead of 20 there needs to be 40 all ships with wireless sets are to maintain communications throughout the entire day and night 24 hours Okay, now all ships need to be on, they, they need to be on 24 hours throughout the entire day and evening for communication purposes. 
Regular boat drills were to be carried out for passengers. You have the Radio Act of 1912. That was the first legislation that required licenses for radio stations along with um, requiring seafaring vessels to regularly monitor and observe distress frequencies. In other words, how if a ship is launching more than one rocket, that ought to be an indicator that a ship is, in, is facing imminent danger. 1914, two years after Titanic's sinking, the International Ice Patrol is created in the wake of, of the Titanic tragedy, and this um, Ice Patrol agency is still around today, folks. Its primary objective is to monitor all iceberg activity in the North Atlantic and provide adequate warning to the maritime community. Senator Smith of Michigan was a two-term senator. He stepped down from Congress in March of 1919, spent roughly 24 years in Congress. He was the owner and publisher of, of the Grand Rapids Herald to serving as chairman of the board of directors for Goodrich Company, whom owned the Graham and Morton Steamship Line, which was the largest operator of steamboats from Chicago to multiple Lake Michigan ports. On October the 11th, well, actually, uh, before I get there, I did find it worth noting that in 1909, William uh, Smith, he defended a federal employee and a civil rights activist named Robert Pelham Jr. It was over a sensitive matter involving civil rights that resulted in uh, Mr. Pelham's acquittal. Very admirable, to say the least. Sadly, on October the 11th of 1932, William Alden Smith died at the age of 73. He's buried in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're not far from finishing it up here, folks, but um, now we got to learn something that uh, that's not only just important, but it says a lot about the differences between Captain Arthur Rostron and Captain Stanley Lord. What made Captain Arthur Rostron... Carpathia's captain stand out so great. As soon as he learned of Titanic CQ, CQD, or distress call, he acted right away. Despite knowing many odds were against him and his crew, he knew there, would, there was nothing good by staying in safe waters, while hundreds to thousands of innocent people were on the verge of losing their lives. Captain Arthur Rostron was the best commander for Carpathia come the early morning hours of April the 15th, 1912. Whereas Captain Rostron chose taking a risk, Stanley Lord, Californian's captain, manipulated those below him who knew more about the uncertainties facing the mystery ship, a.k.a. Titanic. The manipulation alone helped reveal what Lord held inside. Being a sociopath, no compassion or sense of understanding as to the inevitable unfolding probably no more than 10 miles away that would result in thousands of innocent lives lost, all because one leader chose deliberate complacency, no action. Captain Lord was the worst master the Californian could have had under the most dire of circumstances that had never been dealt with before until April the 15th, 1912. Remember, folks, nothing before 1912. There was never a situation on the waters where thousands of people lost their lives. Up, But, coming, but going into the night of April the 14th, 15th of 1912, that's all going to change. 
two captains on their respective bridges, per the ships they are commanding. But the final story behind, in quotations, the other side of the night, will always be measured by one man's bravery whom refused hesitation despite being 58 miles from Titanic and still answered the call for help, while the other man ignored what lied on the horizon and pretended no ship ever existed. One man chose honor and sacrifice while the other turned a blind eye which led to thousands of people dying. 1,502 men, women, and children perishing. Yes, Captain Stanley Lord might not have been able to have saved 1,500 men, but men, women, and children, but if he had gotten his ship moving, had he awoken Cyril Evans, had he listened to his crew below, they could have still made it in time, even as Titanic was sinking and pulled out from the waters. Anywhere from 150 to 200 passengers, or perhaps 222. After all, Californian had six lifeboats. They may not have been the grandest number, but if, if I recall from an earlier podcast, they could... Um, fit up to about maybe 37 uh, people per each lifeboat if filled to capacity. Okay, we may not have saved 1,502 people's lives, but if we had saved 222 people's lives, had Captain Lord done that, he still would have been a hero. Yes, 1,200 people's lives would have died, but 222 more people would have lived. They still would have been able to have had some form of life. So yes, Captain Arthur Rostron chose honor and sacrifice, knowing that he was 58 miles away, to still save those whom had a chance to live, being the 705 Titanic survivors who made it onto lifeboats. Captain Lord turned a blind, turned a blind eye, and 1,502 people died in one of the worst maritime disasters at that time in a time of peace. Well, that covers it, folks. We have uh, finished this uh, book topic series, and it has been um, a fascinating one. I hope all of you who are intrigued by the Titanic or who have been intrigued by it learned more about just what really happened between April the 14th and the 15th of 1912. One ship emerged as a hero on the other side of the night. The other ship didn't, largely in part because of its captain. Yes, the Titanic, it was a tragedy, what, uh, what happened to Titanic, but could it have been avoided? Yes. Had she heeded all those ice warnings? Chances are maybe she wouldn't have hit an iceberg. We'll never really know, but there could have been a different outcome. But the real hero that night was Captain Arthur Rostron in the Carpathia. And it is fair to say that even in the most tragic of situations, thank heavens new measures did come about. I think it's fair to say we are a little bit safer on the waters now than we were um, in 1912, but no matter how sophisticated our technologies are, we still have to be reminded that nature will always prevail. And that was one of the biggest lessons that man had to be reminded of. The Titanic no longer was the final triumph of technology over nature. 
which was a um, harsh reminder given that she sadly sunk because of her ignorance towards Mother Nature. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again next. And, w and when I am on the air again next, we have a new subject to look forward to. Thank you again for being such great listeners.